Our text is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us the mind of Christ, that your Holy Spirit lives within us to guide us into truth. We ask you now to teach us from your word, to open our eyes to how you would have us to live. We give you thanks for all of your many blessings in honor of Jesus and in service to Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You have, well, some of you have, I didn't print enough, but some of you have a handout, and so there are some blanks to fill out. And most of the blanks you'll fill out in the next few minutes, so that's nice. You can get it out of the way, and then you can tune out. <laughs> this is the first of a series of five messages. The title today is Knowing what to do. And the word know can be taken in many different ways. It is a broad word, has many definitions. I'll share five definitions of this word, know. To know is to have information. You have information in your head. You know something. You might say, I know the answer. A second definition is to have understanding. I know what you mean. So that's an agreement that you have with something someone else has said. You now are connected with what they're saying. The third definition is to be familiar with. You might say, I know Jim very well. So you are well acquainted with this person. And of course, I could give you many different sentences that give you different facets of these things. The fourth definition is to feel certain. I know I returned that library book 
And once long ago, I was trying to convince the librarian that I had returned that library book. And they didn't have a record of it, but then lo and behold, a few weeks later, it popped up. Somehow they found it internally and, and checked it in. But then I still owed a fine when I went back in because they checked it in the day they found it, I guess. But I knew I returned that library book. I was certain. The fifth is to recognize. I know a bargain when I see one. So that is to recognize something. Now, all of these definitions, definitions are kind of fluid. When people use words, sometimes it's very, very clear that they mean this definition of the word and not that definition of the word. But sometimes a word can be taken to mean even multiple of the definitions simultaneously. But I'm using this word specifically in the fourth sense. That was the sentence of being certain. The title of the sermon again is knowing what to do. So what this means is that there is certainty. You know what you want to do. You have no doubts in your mind. This series, uh, four of the five sermons, have the phrase, what to do, in the title. The first is knowing what to do. Uh, back two months ago, I'd mentioned to Gary and Phil briefly, maybe in an email, because I knew I wanted to do a series and uh, to give Phil the opportunity to do some writing. We all want him to do that writing. We want to get revelation. You know, if he, posed, if he did it now, it would be many, many volumes. We need to get the one volume. And uh, so we, we hope that he can progress that. But this five-part series came kind of complete. I, it, to me, it was a practical thing to create. And what it has to do is really with decision-making. We all are faced with making decisions all the time. And when I told Gary that I would preach the five Sundays in March, uh, he said, well, you could call the sermon series Marching Orders. And I said, yeah, that's really good. I like that idea. And so now, though, I'm beginning it a week late. So it's going to extend into April. But, you know, that's the way the military goes anyway, right? It's, it's just hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. So it is interesting to me, though, that I like the concept of marching orders, but yet also that phrase, what to do, being in the title. The messages are these, and I think you have blanks for these if you want to write them down. The first is knowing what to do, and that is that you are reasonably certain of a goal or action. You're sure in your spirit this is what God would have you to do. The second one is wanting what to do. So see, knowing is really just the first part, and there are more parts. You might know what to do, but now you need to align your heart with what it, with what it is you know you're supposed to do. So wanting what to do. You have to align your heart with that desire or goal. The third is planning what to do. Things don't just happen. You have to apply your thoughts. You have to apply your intentional acts to this. And so planning what to do is directing our thoughts towards this goal that we know God has given us to accomplish. The fourth, choosing what to do. And so see, this is where we are to avoid the distractions that would otherwise prevent us from accomplishing this goal. This is probably where most of us fall away 
from these things. The last is a common phrase within our family, and it is, do, do, do. Tabitha, that's her phrase for me anytime I talk to her, pretty much. All I ever do is do, do, do. I'm wanting her to do this, do that, do the other thing. And she knows that when I say we, I mean her. <laughs> and so do, do, do is a phrase. Now, do, 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 though, can be a good phrase. Do, do, do. Action, action, action. Accomplish this goal that you've set your heart on. Now, again, in using the full body illustrations that I'm prone to do, knowing what to do, wanting what to do, planning what to do, choosing what to do, and doing, doing. So in other words, there's a lot of this that involves your will. It involves your convictions. That's really much of where the battle is fought in life, isn't it? By the time it gets to your hands, you should really have a good handle on where you're going with what it is that you want to get done. Now, the reason I like both the phrases, marching orders, and what to do, is that this phrase, what to do, you can imagine it, and I know I've seen it in shows and movies, where someone is fretful. What to do, what to do, what to do. They don't know. They're being surprised by something that's going on, and they don't know what to do next, and they're fretting over it. What to do, what to do, what to do. That, of course, isn't how I want you to think of it, but it's memorable. So what to do? We need to transition that what to do to marching orders. So see, so you want to move from the weakness of a conviction over here where you're really, really unsure of what it is that you want to do, what it is that you would have, what God wants you to do, to over here. You now have your marching orders. It's clear what you need to accomplish. In our session, we all kind of have roles, whether they're formal or informal, but Phil always brings meat to every service, I think you'd agree. He's definitely a meat dish kind of guy. He brings meat in his sermons. And I think Gary and I, I haven't cleared this with, with Gary already, but I think Gary and I are more of like side dish or dessert kind of guys. And now we know Gary loves desserts, so we know that he would insist that, yes, someone, everyone must bring some of those. But so I do think that this can be at least a light meat diet in this series. I'm hoping that it is. But really, Phil, he was, he was all for Scarsdale or Atkins way, way, way long ago before it became a fad. Uh, he's an all-meat kind of a guy. So now there... When this came to me, it was in early January, and during that period, and I'll get into it a little bit here, um, but there were two big changes coming for me personally, um, for our family, big time. Uh, the first I knew of, though my wife did not, the second neither one of us knew of, but the first is that I was fairly confident I was going to be let go from UP. And so I have been. Uh, that's not a rumor. That's the truth. And I know that many of you I'd had praying. I'd asked you to pray uh, in recent months over the future, my future there. And the second was uh, the death of Tabitha's father. And so that, of course, took us um, totally by surprise. Uh, two nights before, he had been dining with our son Josiah out in California, uh, enjoying 
uh, playing a game with him. And then 36 hours later, he was, he was dead in his home. So the reason I bring this up is that I will weave some of that into this because God has done it. God has uh, caused the last few months to play out in a way that to me is just miraculous. Uh, it is... Um, God at work loving on me in a very real way. As a matter of fact, back when I met with Phil and Gary, I told them, and I mentioned it this morning, that I have not felt as loved by God as I have in the last couple of months. And uh, it's, you know, it's been a long time. I was a new believer, and you just feel the love of God. It's just a palpable thing. You're reading his word. You just feel his spirit with you. And yet, uh, I've felt all of that. It's, it's like a, a, a honeymoon going on an adventure. Uh, and yet, it's been so many years since I've known the Lord. Now, this series, I think, though, God put on my heart just prior to these things coming into uh, reality. The question I have is for you this. How? How can we be confident in what we are to do? Now, there are many things that we do every day, and yet I'm obviously thinking of the bigger things, the bigger decisions in life, especially the decisions that are painful for you to face. We want to be sure before we make these big decisions, and sometimes it, it's frustratingly difficult to be sure. So how can we be confident in what we are to do? This series... And this one, especially knowing what to do, is in a sense, in its essence, about decision making. How do we make decisions? And so in your handout, you can see, those of you that have it, that this is where the talk is going. We are talking about the process by which we make decisions, hopefully wise decisions. The Bible is filled with examples of both good and bad decisions. I mean, it's just filled with it. Uh, the first bad decision we find is in chapter 3, in the garden. And let me read that to you. This is probably my favorite, most often uh, quoted portion of Scripture. I'll read to you from chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. This is an example of a bad decision. And so the question is, why? Why? What makes this decision bad? Well, she made the decision, and it's entirely encapsulated in verse 6 as to what she based her decision on. And let me reread that. 
So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So she based her decision on those three things. She never appeared to consider the ethics of the decision. Am I allowed to do this? She never considered it. She was not allowed to do this, and yet she'd been persuaded to ignore that simple fact that she was not allowed to do something, and here she was considering it and then indulging in it. Now, we can judge Eve harshly for this. It's obvious she erred, and yet we do it too. We do it all the time. Some of you I've shared my conversion story with, pieces of it. The last portion of it was when I'm living all by myself in this dorm room, and I'm living a very, very frustrating life because while I know God exists, I don't feel that I'm walking with Him yet. When in comes my next roommate, a young Marine named Tony Bastine. And Tony starts leaving this life insurance pamphlet laying around on the sink, on the back of the toilet, on my bed. And so I read it, and it's an eternal life insurance policy. And so then I see that it's a tracts, and I talk with him about it. We ended up talking for hours. And long story short, that's the day that I read my own conversion from Joshua 24, Choose You to Stay Whom You Will Serve. If none of you have heard that, you have to ask me about it sometime. But later, I learned that Tony is married. He moves his wife to Kent Pendleton. They move into a home out in town. But then their marriage is difficult. They're both very young. And yet, about eight, nine months later, he tells me that he and his wife are divorcing. And he said, that, oh, it's okay. I talked to a deacon at my church, and he said, you do what you want. God wants you to be happy. And so that is the advice given by this deacon in his church. Horrible, horrible advice. I mean, it's the advice the serpent was giving Eve. So first, the first point in good decision-making is, is it ethically allowed? Am I allowed to take this path? And people, Phil and Gary and I have talked to people in this church who want to go down a path of disobedience. They want to justify it. Now, if it's possible to have people pursuing sin so directly in our church, which I think is pretty straightforward, pretty strict, then you know it's just rampant in the church. It's rampant among Christians. They just openly ignore God's Word. Now, another bad decision we see soon after this is in Genesis 12. And let me read to you Genesis 12, verses 10 through 12. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen 
when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. And so then he tells her, say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. I believe this is a bad decision on Abram's part. Now, what's really sad about this is Abram has been asked by God, commanded by God, to leave his home. He's moved all the way to Canaan. He's gone to Shechem. God has appeared to him, and here it is. A famine has come upon the land. He's fled to Egypt to survive, and he's devising this plan to escape this perceived persecution by the Egyptians. Deception is what is at play here, and deception isn't necessarily always wrong. Judges 4 and Judges 5 chronicles the story of Jael executing Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. And Deborah and Barak write a song about her. She is a, a, a celebrity in their midst, and she's honored by God. And yet she deceived that man. That man had shown up, asked her to hide him. She said, okay. Told her, if anybody comes looking for me, tell them there's no one here. Okay. And then she takes a hammer and a tent peg when he's sound asleep and smashes his skull. Murdered him. But God wanted that done. This was deception on her part. And yet she is honored in Scripture for having done this for having stood against the Canaanites and supported the Israelites. So, what makes Abraham's, Abram at the time, what makes his deception different from Jael's deception? I think there are a couple big points. First, Abram acted out of personal fear for his safety, whereas Jael courageously overcame her fear, crept into the tent and smashed this man's head. She acted bravely. He's acting cowardly. Second, Abram acted out of self-interest, and Jael acted out of civic duty. She was supporting the people of Israel who God was saving. And third, Abram did not appear to consult God at all in this matter. His plan lacked faith. He was going to save himself, and he was not apparently going to even talk to God about having God save him. So the second point, the first was, is it ethically right? The second question is, is it morally right? Am I doing something that's right? Or am I acting in my own self-interest? Okay, a third decision-making point comes to us in Judah, the life of Judah. It's Genesis chapter 38. We have already been introduced, really, to the story of Joseph. He is sold into slavery, but then we have this interesting Genesis chapter 38 that is odd, and it's all about Judah and his three boys and his wife passing, his sons dying, and then he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. It's just a bizarre chapter in the middle of the Joseph story. And so Judah, his wife has passed away, he ends up going, he finds a harlot, but it's his daughter-in-law pretending to be a harlot. She asks, what pledge will you give me until you give me this goat you've promised me? He gives her what's called his signet, his cord, his staff, 
And then she takes them. And then he sends a friend, his friend the Adulamite, with the goat that he promised her, and he can't find her. There is no woman here. There is no harlot here. And this is what Judah said. Well, let's not pursue this any for further, lest we be shamed. Listen to how Judah said this. Lest we be shamed. He's now including his Adulamite friend in his own Sin, his own failure of judgment. And we know how that worked out for Judah, right? That's what Je Genesis chapter 38 is all about. So, Jesus alludes to decisions such as what Judah faced there, what Judah cast away as meaningless, as useless to him. Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 14. Let me... Turn there. Luke 14 is starting at verse 31. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is referring to is what is typically in our culture referred to as a risk assessment. What is the downside of doing what it is that I'm thinking about doing? And there was, for Judah, a significant downside that he had no clue he was uh, opening himself up to. A king could lose his kingdom. He could lose all of his people, kill all these people. And so any good king should then be thinking about what are the risks that I'm facing by doing this. And so the decision-making point number three is, is it worth the risk? Whatever it is you're considering doing, you have to consider not just the upside. We tend to focus on that to the exclusion of looking at what could go wrong. Where does this go if it goes badly? The fourth decision is right in this same text. In the same discourse earlier, Jesus spoke of someone building a tower. And let me read that. Which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So this is a lesson concerning preparedness, resources. Am I capable of doing what it is that I'm thinking about doing, this decision that I'm pondering? So the fourth question is, am I prepared for this, or is it beyond my abilities? Now here, you can say, though, not just am I prepared for this, but are we prepared for this? In other words, any man attempting a larger endeavor would typically then put together a team. He needs people to help him. It's a big deal. If only for prayer support, pray for me. Uh, in recent months, I've been so thankful when people have said that they are praying about the situation I was facing. Uh, it really makes you feel good to know that people are, have you in their prayers. I remember uh, one of my favorite movies, another one. It's a horrible movie, though. Don't watch it. But it's The Outlaw Josie Wales. But I love that phrase where he's talking to the gunfighter that recognizes him and admits it, and then he walks out, but then he comes back in. 
And he tells him, dying ain't much of a, much of a business you know, for you, boy. And he says, a man's got to know his limitations. And so that's what this question alludes to. Am I prepared for this? Am I thinking beyond myself? Am I, am I imagining that I can accomplish this, that God is putting this on my heart, when in reality it's my own ego, and I'm pursuing something that's beyond my reach, beyond my skills? We've got to take that seriously. So the four questions that we've asked so far are, is it ethically allowed? Is it morally right? Is it worth the risk? And am I prepared to embrace it? And so the fifth question has to do with timing. Some of us are prone to rush into decisions. We don't really think things through, and then we start talking about it. That's, in essence, how some of us think, really. We talk out loud. We share things. Every married couple has to deal with this. It's very difficult sometimes for a married couple to get on the same page concerning how decisions are made within the home. Now, we practice male headship, and all of us believe male headship. But if you believe that male headship means your wife doesn't have a say in discussions, you will be filled with regrets going forward in life. <laughs> because that's what marriage is all about. Your wife is there to help you. Yes, you have the responsibility. God will hold you accountable for all the decisions you make. Just like when Hagar, Sarah insisted Abram take Hagar, well, okay, but he was to blame. He screwed up, he was to blame. Another bad decision. But so husbands really have to learn how to work the decisions through. It's their responsibility to devise the process that both he and his wife can agree to. And there are errors all over the place in terms of that working out. Uh, long ago, and let me share one of my errors uh, with you. Long ago, Tabitha and I lived in the East Bay in California. Some of you might know that. Uh, we married in 1986. And in 1987, we bought a condo, a cat, and a car. And I have a story about all those. The next year, we had a baby, our daughter, Rachel. And that year also, I took a new job. I took a job with NASA. For our fifth anniversary in 1991, we went to Hawaii, and I still regard it as my most favorite vacation ever on all the earth. We went to Maui. I'd planned 12 days. We, it was just so relaxing. It was so enjoyable. And so we came back, and I really, really didn't want to come back to reality. Uh, it was so nice in Hawaii. You're just living in this paradise. So one of the first things when I got back I wanted was to, I think, devise a way to get back to Hawaii. And so I devised a business plan where I would buy and then equip people to manage these carts and they would sell fresh pineapple on sticks across the island. I was really shocked that people weren't doing this. Their pineapple is 10 times better than any pineapple you'll find in Omaha. It's so good. And so after we'd eaten our first pineapple, I was like, how can they? I mean, I just wanted to eat it all the time. Instead, we bought a coconut and it took like an hour to get into the coconut and then ate this nasty milk. It was, don't eat coconuts. <laughs> Pineapples are really good. So 
I am consumed with this. I mean, I'm devising how we can have a warehouse, how many people I can hire, how many carts I can equip, when I can get there. I was writing to the uh, government of Hawaii. Tabitha's concerned at this point. <laughs> Rightfully so. I'm living in this fantasy world. I have no capital to go start a business in Hawaii selling pineapple off of carts, but I desperately wanted to get back to Hawaii. And this, I thought, was a way to do it. And I didn't like my job at the time working for NASA, and I wanted out of it. But so we all, I think, at points have good ideas, big ideas. And yet, not all those ideas really ought to be shared with your wife. I, I, I freaked her out. Other ideas I had, and these involve the other things I talked about. A remote control ball for my cat. I mean, this is, this is 1987. I'm way ahead of things here. I wanted a remote control that I could put a ball on the floor and control it and make the cat chase it. I never developed it, of course, or else I wouldn't be here. I'd probably be, you know, uh, having become a billionaire or something. But... Yeah, in Hawaii. Yeah, selling pineapple. I also devised a child security system. We would go to the park with Rachel, and she, you know, she was always very independent. And so we'd get over there, and we'd look around. Where's Rachel? She's gone. She's off playing somewhere. And so what we discussed, actually, was, you know, it would be really nice if you could clip something under your kid, and when your kid gets, like, more than 20 or 30 feet away from you based on some setting, you're thing beeps, tells you your kid is getting away from you. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. I believe those exist now. I was way ahead of it. And uh, another one involving my daughter and us volunteering at a church. I'm volunteering in the nursery. I'm in the nursery, and there are five rooms. This was a really nice nursery. This was in Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley, California. And so we have to volunteer. I guess you don't have to, but, you know, we volunteered, and I'm in this nursery, and I hear a baby crying. Well, they have all these soundproof little booths that the babies are in, and my hearing is bad now, but it really wasn't then. I know one of these babies is crying. I just don't know which one, and so I'm over there at the door listening. Is it this one? And then, of course, they don't make a sound when you're at the door, so I devised another thing, invention. I wanted a a a microphone, essentially, that was in all these rooms that was connected through a tube to an LED outside the door, next to the doorknob. So if I glance over and hear a baby crying, ah, I could see it's room four. I just walk over there. They probably have those now, too. I don't know. But anyway, lots of good ideas, but that's all they ever were, were ideas. And yet I would burden my wife with fantasies about transitioning from this just ideas into reality, scaring her, I think, all the time, because all she sees is me quitting. Has he quit already? Has he bought property in Hawaii? I don't know. So I just think that we have to be very careful in exactly... You, you men need confidants that you can talk to about such things that aren't necessarily your wives. They might not be able to handle such fantasy ideas. But the question here, the, the decision-making question is, by when must a decision be made? I've actually been talking about that point. We, when we have an idea, think we must act. We're all passionate about it. But why? Is it that we have to act based on the situation? Or is it that we're trying to escape something? 
by when must a decision be made, you could also shorten that to a different question. Must a decision be made? And so in my situations here that I described, there was no decision to be made. I had a great job. I wasn't, but I was unhappy and I was just seeking this fantasy fulfillment of the future. So fifth question, by when or even if a decision must be made. The next one. This one hits close to home for all of us, I think. Um, all decision-making involves two fundamentally different aspects. There is the objective and there is the subjective. And so just to kind of give the young people working definitions of those terms, subjective, our subjective reasoning is based on our personal perspectives, our feelings, our emotions, whereas objective is supposed to be the elimination of all that, just the facts. And anybody who's as old as me would remember Dragnet and Joe Friday and the, their car shows up at a scene and, and someone is all emotional and, and the, Joe Friday is just trying to talk them down. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. He's got out his little notebook and he's only going to write down the facts. So that's what the difference between subjectivity and objectivity comes down to. Now, we are trained to believe in our culture that objectivity is good, subjectivity is not so good. It's even bad. So what we do is we take everything that we believe subjectively and we try to squish it into an objective metric on this other side. Because we know to leave it over here is to leave it in the bad spot where it can't be defended. You must get it over here. So when a lot of us make pros and cons lists, we already know what we want to do. And so we put all kinds of things and justify what we want to do, and we can't think of anything as to why that's a bad idea until we show it to somebody else, like our wife. And then our wife points out all these cons, and it makes us upset. Why are you pointing out all these? Why are you raining on my parade? Well, it's a pros-cons list. What do you mean? You're supposed to accept these. Well, I don't want to. And that's not nearly as bad. So then... You really, it reveals your heart. You're supposed to make this pro and con list, and yet here you are defending everything that goes on the list and shooting down anything. So you realize, oh, I'm, I'm definitely subjectively involved here. Books and articles on marketing. I don't know if you, any of you are marketer, marketers, but uh, books and articles on marketing try to justify the belief that essentially all buying decisions are subjective. We might put a veneer of objectivity over it, make a pros and cons list and all this stuff. But they say, and they you know, try to justify it in their studies, that no, no, you're pretty much buying based on marketing, based on your heart, based on your emotions, based on your wants. As analytical as you might be, some marketers will say, no, no, you're far more persuaded by subjectivity than you give credit for. Now, I'm not all one or the other. I, I think they go too far. But I do think we want to delude ourselves in thinking something far more objective than in reality it is. And so we can be swayed by subjectivity and not want to accept it. So decision-making point number six is, am I thinking objectively 
about this. Phil had a great uh, series long ago, and it was about sales resistance, developing sales resistance. And so you essentially detect that appeal to your subjectivity, that appeal to your emotions. Decision-making question number seven. Now, this is getting now kind of to more biblical reasoning. Uh, not that the others aren't, you know, all logic is God's logic, but belief in the sovereignty of God is something that all Presbyterians believe, even liberals I've found. You might have liberal Presbyterian friends that do advocate for election and predestination. I find it kind of odd. You would think that liberal Presbyterians would pitch that, but I've found many that haven't. So we who believe in the sovereignty of God know that everyone and everything in our lives God has a plan for. It's amazing. It's amazing to us. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things. Now, some people don't really know God, and yet they attempt to rely upon that in their own lives, and I don't think that's wise. That text doesn't apply to them, at least not until they acknowledge God. Now, it is practically impossible for any of us to predict future events with certainty. And I say practically impossible because we can know someone so well that we will know what they'll do in this or that situation. And I remember reading years ago about an example in which a Calvinist student played a trick on his Arminian friend. And he predicted something that was going to happen, but that's because he knew his friend so well. And he was able to orchestrate the situation such that it came to pass. It was pretty cool, actually. It was a good idea. But all that means, though, is that we can know one another enough, and you kind of know what people like or dislike. But still, it's practically impossible for any of us to tell the future. But the past is wide open for your analysis, for your introspection. So what has God done in your life over the past week, month, year, in order to prepare you for the decision that you're now faced with? Where is God directing you? Is what you're now facing a decision that appears to be going in that direction, or does it appear to be going away from that direction? When we were at the Elders' Summit over in Peoria back in January, uh, Phil and Kathy presented together. They had each uh, couple present, and they did it really, really well. It was well choreographed, well thought through. It was beautiful. And Phil had someone hand out, Gary, hand out his arrow, his life arrow. And I tell you, when Dominion was founded, I mean, Matt Bennett, I mean, he just, he just could not fathom that arrow. Uh, Phil spoke of how helpful it was to him in figuring out what God wanted uh, Phil to do in his life by looking at his past. Where have I been? What have I learned through that? What's the trajectory God appears to have me on? 
And not all of us could do that arrow. I mean, that's a big arrow. It's got lots of details, lots of information. And it's somewhat painful. You have to go through these painful events in your life and attempt to mine them for value. And it's not something that everybody can do easily. But that analysis, I believe, gave Phil an appreciation for his past that few of us have ever looked at our past to try to mine for good intelligence. Where does God want me to go given where he's brought me? So this seventh question is, has God led me to this point? Is he leading you to this decision, and has he been in it all along? Is it, is it taking you further down the path that he already appears to be wanting you to go? Again, this can be somewhat subjective, so you have to look at your motives. What do I want? And then remain more objective and think, okay, where is God taking me? Because like I said, next week, it's about us aligning our hearts with, with where God wants us to go. Where God wants us to go may not be where we want to go right now. That was very true for Paul at first, remember? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. God had to take Paul and redirect him. What shall I do, Lord? Go to this city and you shall be told what you shall do. So see, Paul was a blank slate at that point. He was just this huge to-do list with nothing on it. And he wanted God to fill it out. And God did. Now, this gets a little more personal here. <clears throat> I told you at the beginning what had happened, that those two things leading up to the selection of this series. I'll try to be brief in this, but I'd always thought that I would retire at UP. I had no reason not to believe otherwise. And to be perfectly honest, I could have. It, it was a decision on my part to uh, move away from that possible ending. Over the last year and a half, about a year and a half ago, I'd realized that what I really lacked at work was more responsibility. I'd been trained by a woman who is an excellent project manager to be a good project manager, and yet while remaining under her direction, she would never let me manage anything. I mean, she did everything, because she could do it 10 times better than me, and I agreed. But it made for me having not so much to do because anything that I could do, she could do better. Anything I could do, she would do so, so I, I was just very unhappy. She loved me. She loved me working for her. But I told her, I said, you micromanage me. I don't want this. So I sought more responsibility consistently over a year and a half period. And yet at several intervals, it only led to me having less responsibility. Eventually, far less responsibility. This was not where I wanted to go. I wanted to go this way, and I was going that way. And that's where I'd been. That's where I, my career had been for 20 years, and I didn't want to go back there. So as I reflected back in December, January, on what this last question had been, the trajectory, it suddenly dawned on me that God did not want me to remain at UP. And I was shocked by this. But I was like, God, I'm only four, four and a half years away from retirement. Why would you want me to leave? And yet it was very clear to me. And I told Phil and Gary, and you know, Phil said, yeah, but you want to do the pros and cons? You want to do all this? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm seeking the Lord's will. And uh, yet within a day or two again, it was just affirmed. Like I said, I, I've just felt so loved by God. 
in recent months. And during that period especially, I just felt God guiding me into what it is that he wanted me to do. And it was uh, surprising, just really, really uh, had me reeling at the time. And within the space of a few days in mid-January, everything changed. So now, I want to share with you now decision-making point number eight. Is God with me in this? So the last one is you're trying to determine your trajectory. And yet now you're at a, a, a very important point. You're trying to make a decision concerning your future. And is this where God wants you to go? That's a big deal. So now, as I was wrestling through this issue, I was very reluctant to talk to Tabitha, like I said earlier, about my failures back in California. I would share way too much with her. And I knew she wouldn't want me to leave UP. And yet I, I felt absolutely certain that that's where God was taking me, that he was taking me away. After the elders' summit, I began to seek opportunities to discuss with, with Tabitha. And so then I met with my AVP, let him know that I'd like to be on the hit list. He said, that's fine, Rod. Um, met with Phil and Gary, told him what I'd done. They said, are you sure? Phil's like, Rod, I've always wanted you to be here. I'm not, I'm not leaving. And then the very next day, after telling them that I'd pray about it, again, it was affirmed for me, this is where God wants me to go. The very next day, by, time, by the time of which I'd purposed to tell Tabitha, I got a phone call from her. Her father had died. So then I knew I couldn't tell her. She's on a plane flying out to California. I'm waiting to get the ax at UP. And uh, yet, as it's played out over the last six weeks, God could not have orchestrated this any better. And yet, I would have never thought it possible a year and a half earlier. It was just so weird where we've wound up. But uh, the question then is, is God with me in this? And this can be very subjective. I don't know of a way where I could, using reason and rational facts, share with anybody here, Phil and Gary included, or Tabitha, exactly why I felt so confident in where I was headed. But by the time I knew that I then would be free, I couldn't tell Tabitha, I didn't want to tell her, but I knew after we'd buried her father, I'd return, get fired, and then I could come spend whatever time she needed uh, me for out in California. And it's worked out wonderfully, just beautifully, far better than I could have planned it myself. Now, I did begin this by reading a text in 1 Corinthians 2 that I have not referred to, and I do apologize for that. I told Gary, he said, how, Rod, how can you even not know your text? Because a few days ago, I didn't know my text. And... Uh, he, he just could not fathom that. And frankly, about 8 o'clock last night, I couldn't fathom it either. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, God, you know, developed this. Now, for months, we've been reading and reviewing and discussing the Knowing God book in this room over here. It's been a wonderful, a wonderful walk down memory lane for me. I've done it many times. But... Uh, I want to reread a portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, 
yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit from, of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. When I read verse 9, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I always think future. And yet, I had overlooked the context. Because read the very next sentence. But God has revealed them, referring back to the things that are spoken of, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. This is past tense. So these things that I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man has already been revealed to us. But are we seeing it? Are we seeing what it is that God has revealed to us? And the reason I share from this text is that I believe personally that God has revealed that to me in a very real way in recent months. And it's beautiful. It's lovely. It makes me want to uh, serve God all that more uh, uh, faithfully. <clears throat> I want to read from Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30, and I'll read two verses, verses 18 and verse 21. <clears throat> therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Verse 21. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. What the writer here, God, through the writer Isaiah, is sharing with us is that God will guide you. It will be as if you are hearing his voice telling you, affirming for you, yes, this is the way I want you to go. It's like you step onto a path. You know, Phil, when he was over in China, he shared an example of that where they suddenly all were aware, we need to get out of here, time to go. And then it was raided later. So see, God can do that. This is what eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into our hearts. But yet God can direct us in this way. We Presbyterians are not used to thinking and speaking in these terms, but yet these are real. These are biblical concepts. Isaiah 28, 23 reads, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Now we know God's word fulfills that for us in many ways, in which the people of this time 3,000 years ago could not have really personally benefited from nearly as much as we do now. God's completed word. Isaiah 30, 30. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard. So when you are making a decision, this is all about decision-making today. It's about knowing what to do. So when you're faced with an important decision, what you should be seeking to do is these points that I've covered. But what you are wanting to do mostly is listen for God's voice. How is it that he will speak to you? And if you've never, ever 
heard God's voice, if you've never had him affirm something for you, then that's what you seek. You must develop a relationship with God, a rapport with God, to where you can sense what it is that he's telling you. You know it. You're confident in it. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So see, when you're holding a lamp at your feet, it's like us walking around with our flashlights in our house at night. You're only going to see what your light is shining on. You can't see everything. But you will see what God wants you to see. You will not see what God does not want you to see, what God does not need you to see. That's in part where I am now. I told Phil and Gary, I said, I know God wants me out of UP, but I have no idea what the future holds yet. He's not revealed that. He's beginning to, but it's exciting. It's scary, but it's exciting. To be confident in such a life-changing decision that this is where God wants you to go. I encourage you to, especially if you are facing big decisions now or if you anticipate doing so, um, to, to take this as a starting point and study it, develop these ideas. I'm, I'm, I was in no way thorough today. These are just some points relative to wise decision-making. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you promise to be our God, to be with us, to guide us, to illuminate our steps, to light our path. Lord, we have so little faith, and we know that at times we suffer for want of our little faith. So we pray, Lord, please strengthen our faith. Give us more. Have us to exercise that which we have. Have us to cast our cares upon you, to not fret what to do, what to do, but to seek your marching orders, to be confident entering into each day, each future day, as to what you would have us to do that day. We pray, Lord, that we would obey, that we would not shirk, that we would do our duty. We ask you now to guide us into the future, lead us as you promised. In Christ's name we pray, amen.